Chapter Fifty Six of Mary Annerly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mary Annerly by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. Chapter Fifty Six. In the thick of it. One of the greatest days in all the history of England, having no sense of its future fame and being upon a hostile coast was shining rather dismally and one of england's greatest men the greatest of all her sons in battle though few of them have been small at that was out of his usual mood and full of calm presentiment and gloomy joy he knew that he would see the sun no more yet his fear was not of that but only of losing the light of duty as long as the sun endures he shall never see duty done more brilliantly the wind was dropping to give the storm of human fury leisure and while a sullen swell was rolling canvas flapped and timbers creaked like a team of mallards in double column plunging and lifting buoyant breasts to right and left alternately the british fleet bore down upon the swan-like crescent of the foe these were doing their best to fly but failing of that luck put helm a lee and shivered in the wind and made fine speeches proving that they must win the day for this i have lived and for this it would be worth my while to die having no one left i dare say now in all the world to care for me thus spake the junior lieutenant of that british ship the victory a young man after the heart of nelson and gazing now on nelson's face no smarter sailor could be found in all that noble fleet than this lieutenant blythe who once had been the captain of all smugglers he had fought his way up by skill and spirit and patience and good temper and the precious gift of self-reliance failing of which all merit fails he had always thought well of himself but never destroyed the good of it by saying so and whoever praised him had to do it again to outspeak his modesty but without good fortune all these merits would never have been successes one of robin's truest merits was that he generally earned good luck however his spirits were not in their usual flow of jocundity just now and his lively face was dashed with care not through fear of lead or steel or wooden splinter or a knock upon the head or any other human mode of encouraging humanity he hoped to keep out of the way of these as even the greatest heroes do for how could the world get on if all its bravest men went foremost his mind meant clearly and with trust in proper providence to remain in its present bodily surroundings with which it had no fault to find grief however so far as a man having faith in his luck admits that point certainly was making some little hole into a heart of corky fibre for robin lith had heard last night when a schooner joined the fleet with letters that mary annerly at last was going to marry harry tanfield he told himself over and over again that if it were so the fault was his own because he had not taken proper care about the safe dispatch of letters changing from ship to ship and from sea to sea for the last two years or more he had found but few opportunities of writing and even of those he had not made the utmost 
To Mary herself he had never once written, knowing well that her father forbade it, while his letters to Flambre had been few, and some of those few had miscarried. For the French had a very clever knack just now of catching the English dispatch-boats, in most of which they found accounts of their own thrashings, as a listener catches bad news of himself. But none of these led to improve their conduct. Flambre, having felt certain that Robin could never exist without free trade, and missing many little courtesies that flowed from his liberal administration, was only too ready to lament his death, without insisting on particulars. Even as a man who has foretold a very destructive gale of wind tempers with the pride of truth the sorrow which he ought to feel for his domestic chimney-pots, as soon as he finds them upon his lawn, so little Denmark, while bewailing, accepted the loss as a compliment to his own renowned sagacity. But Robin knew not until last night that he was made dead at Flambre, through the wreck of a ship which he had quitted a month before she was cast away, and now at last he only heard that news by means of his shipmate, Jack Annerley. Jack was a thorough-going sailor now, easy and childish and full of the present, leaving the past to cure and the future to care for itself as might be. He had promised Mr. Mordax and Robin Coxcroft to find out Robin Liff and tell him all about the conviction of John Cadman, and knowing his name in the navy and that of his ship, he had done so after in-and-out chase. But there, for the time, he had rested from his labours and left Davy Jones to send back word about it, which that Pelagian Davy fails to do unless the message is enshrined in a bottle for which he seems to cherish true naval regard. In this state of things the two brothers-in-law, as they fully intended to be by and by, were going into this tremendous battle, Jack as a petty officer and Robin as a junior lieutenant of Lord Nelson's ship. Already had Jack Annerley begun to feel for Robin, or Lieutenant Blythe, as he now was called, that liking of admiration which his clear free manner and quickness of resource and agreeable smile in the teeth of peril had won for him before he had the legal right to fight much and robin as he shall still be called while the memory of flamborough endures regarded jack annerley with fatherly affection and hoped to put strength into his character however one necessary step toward that is to keep the character surviving and in the world's pell-mell now beginning the uproar alone was enough to kill some and the smoke sufficient to choke the rest many a british sailor who by the mercy of providence survived that day never could hear a word concerning any other battle even though a son of his own delivered it down a trumpet so furious was the concussion of the air the din of roaring metal and the clash of cannon-balls which met in the air and split up into founts of iron no less than seven French and Spanish ships agreed with one accord to call upon and destroy Lord Nelson's ship, and if they had only adopted a rational mode of doing it, and shot straight, they could hardly have helped succeeding. Even as it was, they succeeded far too well, for they managed to make England to rue the tidings of her greatest victory. In the storm and whirl and flame of battle, when shot flew as close as the teeth of a hay-rake, and fire blazed into furious eyes, and then with a blow was quenched forever, 
and raging men flew into pieces some of which killed their dearest friends who was he that could do more than attend to his own business nelson had known that it would be so and had twice enjoined it in his orders and when he was carried down to die his dying mind was still on this robin lith was close to him when he fell and helped to bear him to his plank of death and came back with orders not to speak but work then ensued that crowning effort of misplaced audacity the attempt to board and carry by storm the ship that still was nelson's the captain of the redoubtable saw through an alley of light between walls of smoke that the quarter-deck of the victory had plenty of corpses but scarcely a life upon it also he felt from the comfort of his feet and the increasing firmness of his spinal column that the heavy british guns upon the lower decks had ceased to throb and thunder into his own poor ship with a bound of high spirits he leaped to a pleasing conclusion and shouted forward my brave sons we will take the vessel of war of that nielsen this however proved to be beyond his power partly through the inborn absurdity of the thing and partly no doubt through the quick perception and former vocation of robin lith what would england have said if her greatest hero had breathed his last in french arms and a captive to the frenchman could nelson himself have departed thus to a world in which he never could have put the matter straight the wrong would have been redressed very smartly here but perhaps outside his knowledge even to dream of it awakes a shudder yet outrages almost as great have triumphed and nothing is quite beyond the irony of fate but if free trade cannot be shown as yet to have won for our country any other blessing it has earned the last atom of our patience and fortitude by its indirect benevolence at this great time without free trade in its sweeter and more innocent maidenhood of smuggling there never could have been on board that english ship the victory a man unless he were a runagate with a mind of such laxity as to understand french but robin lith caught the french captain's words and with two bounds and a hallo called up britons from below by this time a swarm of brave frenchmen was gathered in the mizzen chains and gangways of their ship waiting for a lift of the sea to launch them into the english outwards and scarcely a dozen englishmen were alive within hail to encounter them not even an officer till robin lith returned was there to take command of them the foremost and readiest there was jack annerly with a boarder's pike and a brace of ship pistols and his fine ruddy face screwed up as firm as his father's before a big sail of wheat come on you froggies we are ready for you he shouted as if he had a hundred men in ambush they for their part failed to enter into the niceties of his language which difficulty somehow used never to be felt among classic warriors yet from his manner and position they made out that he offered let and hindrance to remove him from their course they began to load guns or to look about for loaded ones postponing their advance until he should cease to interfere so clear at that time was the gallic perception of an english sailor's fortitude seeing this to be so jack whose mind was not well balanced threw a powder-case amongst them and exhibited a dance but this was cut short by a hand-grenade and before he had time to recover from that the deck within a yard of his head flew open 
and a stunning crash went by. Poor Jack Annerly lay quite senseless, while ten or twelve men, who were rushing up to repel the enemy, fell and died in a hurricane of splinters. A heavy round shot fired up from the enemy's main deck had shattered all before it, and Jack might thank the grenade that he lay on his back while the havoc swept over. Still his peril was hot, for a volley of musketry whistled and rang around him, and at last a hundred and fifty men were watching their time to leap down on him. Everything now looked as bad as it could be, with the drifting of the smoke and the flare of the fire, and the pelting of bullets, and of grapnel from cohorns, and the screams of Frenchmen exulting vastly, with scarcely any Englishman to stop them. It seemed as if they were to do as they pleased, level the bulwarks of English rights, and cover themselves with more glory than ever. But while they yet waited to give one more scream, a very different sound arose. Powder and metal, and crash of timber, and even French and Spanish throats at their very highest pressure, were of no avail against the onward vigour and power of an English cheer. This cheer had a very fine effect. Out of their own mouths the foreigners at once were convicted of inferior stuff, and their two twelve-pounders crammed with grapnel, which ought to have scattered mortality, banged upward, as harmless as a pod discharging seed. In no account of this great conflict is any precision observed concerning the pell-mell and fisticuffs part of it. The worst of it is that on such occasions almost everybody who was there enlarges his own share of it, and although reflection ought to curb this inclination, it seems to do quite the contrary. This may be the reason why nobody as yet, except Mary Annerley and Flamborough folk, seems even to have tried to assign fair importance to Robin Lith's share in this glorious encounter. It is now too late to strive against the tide of fortuitous clamour, whose deposit is called history. Enough that this Englishman came up, with fifty more behind him, and carried all before him as he was bound to do. End of chapter 56